Here's a riddle. What actor played Hamlet in his 30s and then again in his 80s? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. The unusual distinction of playing Shakespeare's Danish prince in productions separated by half a century belongs to Sir Ian McKellen. He was a rising star of the British stage in 1971 when he first played Hamlet. In the years since, he's taken on a number of Shakespearean roles, including Edgar, Romeo, Leontes, Macbeth, Coriolanus, Iago, Richard III, Prospero, and King Lear. Not to mention playing Magneto in four X-Men films and Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. The second time he played Hamlet, on stage in 2021 at the Theatre Royal Windsor, he was in his 80s and one of the most beloved stage actors working. Then, at this year's Edinburgh Fringe, McKellen played Hamlet again. This time, he split the role, speaking the part alongside a ballet dancer in a production directed by Peter Schaufus. Now, McKellen is appearing as King Hamlet's ghost in an essay film about the play called Hamlet Within. If thou didst ever thy dear father love, revenge is foul and most unnatural murder. Murder most foul. That's in the best it is, but this most foul, strange, and unnatural. Sir Ian McKellen joined us from his home in East London for an extended conversation with Barbara Bogave. In part one of our interview, he begins by describing the age, gender, and colorblind stage production of Hamlet he starred in last year, directed by Sean Mathias. When we were preparing to do Hamlet, COVID arrived and we, we weren't allowed to open the theater, but we had a cast. And so what we did is we went to the theater, the Theatre Royal Windsor, which is just in the shadow of, of the Windsor Castle. And we we filmed Hamlet, uh, not on the stage. Most of the time we, we were in the corridors, front of house, in the cellar, underneath the stage, above the stage, and the flies are on the roof. And uh, that's where I met the ghost, played by Francesca Annis, who had been Juliet when I played Romeo in 1976. But the point is, in the background was a real castle, Windsor Castle, and, and the Queen gave her permission for us to light it up at midnight, and uh, you'll see it standing in uh, for the castle of Elsinore. Well, that film was completed before we ever put the production on the stage. It was our sort of rehearsal period. That will be coming out um, during the next few months. I don't quite know when. So have you gotten Hamlet out of your system for the time being? I mean, you've done a play, a ballet, and a film. Maybe you could do it as a musical? <laughs> it's never really been in my system. It's, 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 not, a, it's not a favorite play of mine. It's a, it's a puzzle of a play, particularly when you're in it. Uh, there seem to be so many alternatives and difficult to decide what you should do. But... Uh, I did come back to it after uh, 50 years after I first played it at, a, at the, a very good age. I was 31 or something when I first played it. Together with all forms, modes, shapes of grief, 
that can denote me truly, these indeed seem. For they are actions that a man might play. In 83, when I got to do it for the second time. Uh, but I had learned quite a lot about acting in the intervening half century and was able to apply a more relaxed attitude. When I first played it, I rather demonstrated to the audience what they should note about Hamlet and so on and so on. I was in, constantly interpreting the part. When, when I more recently played it, I, I, I let the text speak for itself and I was much less concerned to come up with any psychological explanation for what he does or trying to put labels on him. And uh, I just did the text and found the audience was just as gripped as would have been had I been peddling some new interpretation. But out of my system, yes, I, I, I don't think I shall be uh, doing uh, Hamlet again. But, of course, there are other parts than Hamlet worth playing, and um, the old joke is that uh, you start your career, if you're lucky, playing Bernardo in the first scene with a few lines, and then you might progress to play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and if you're any good, you might get to play Horatio or Laertes, and then maybe Hamlet himself, but then don't despair because as you get older, you can still play the king, Claudius, and then his elder, Polonius, and after that, you could play Yorick. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose with age-blind productions, you can play anything. Um, but one quote that, from way back in your past, I think, that really leapt out at me when I was reading about you and Hamlet was uh, that you once said of Hamlet that Peter O'Toole was right when he said it was just one long wank from beginning to end, just pure self-indulgence. And any actor more than 30 is dreary. <laughs> yes, well, I, uh, it, it would be for, for my uh, the age I was when I wrote that. I, I, I used to be bewildered when, as a, a teenager, I, I saw people old enough to be my parents, if not grandparents, playing juvenile parts. Uh, it, it was a bewilderment to me. Now I'm 83, everyone's young, <laughs> so it doesn't, it doesn't bother me anymore. When you said earlier... Hamlet is so hard. It's full of puzzles. What What's the biggest puzzle for you? Well, the, the, the text, it's... Kenneth Branagh did a film of Hamlet in which he did the full text. That's all the versions that we have of the play. And uh, notoriously, the quarto version, the play printed while Shakespeare is alive, is at odds with the version of Hamlet in the first folio published after his death. And it's not enough to say that, uh, oh, the, the printers got it wrong or, or made some changes. No, it's quite clear that there was an awful lot of Hamlets that uh, Shakespeare wrote and an awful lot of cutting of that version which found its way onto the stage. And when you read the whole text, there are so many contributions and, and blind alleys that you tempted to go down but don't really lead anywhere. And playing for an audience, the fear is that they would frankly get bored as well as confused. So that, that's your first problem. Uh, what are you actually going to say? So in deciding that, you and the director will begin to create your own play out of Shakespeare's 
Now, this wouldn't apply to Macbeth, which is a short play. You can rattle it off in just two hours. Hamlet rattled off in the full version would take at least twice that. Macbeth is sort of uh, faultless in its construction. Yeah, it's so lean. And yes, has a terrifying effect on the audience. So Hamlet is a play that you've got to gather into yourself and then uh, uh, deliver on your own terms. And, and that's, um, that makes a lot, a lot of demands. And then, of course, for a young actor, the, the, the weight of, of history and the number of actors who've been wildly acclaimed in the part is, is um, more than any other dramatic character that I can think of. Well, I do want to ask you about this ballet, Hamlet, that you just did at Edinburgh. Yes. And uh, people who don't know about it, the, the Danish dancer Johan Christensen had performed this before using an audio recording of John Gilgood as Hamlet. Yes. And then, then they invited you to, to be there in the, in the flesh. So what kinds of conversations did you have with uh, the director, Peter Schalfus, and Christensen about how this production would differ given that it's, it's you and you're there? People of, people of my generation remember that Peter Schalfus, the Danish classical ballet dancer, was uh, considered on a par with Rudolf Nureyev and uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov. Well, he's still working, and he has a school in Edinburgh. And uh, during the festival, Edinburgh Festival this year, he remounted his uh, 75-minute version of Hamlet, danced, and I was invited to come in and supply words, some of the words, which words. So at, at an initial 10 days in, in London, uh, Peter and Johan, the Hamlet, the dancing Hamlet, and I, began to imagine how involved I might be physically in the production, whether I should stand to one side or even risk getting involved. And when I uh, went back for the uh, final rehearsals, in the meantime, music had been written and dances choreographed. Then I became part director, part uh, actor, part ensemble, really. And there were a couple of moments when actually... We discovered something. For example, when, when Hamlet has inadvertently slain Polonius, thinking him to be the murderer Claudius, Hamlet is initially distraught and angry, and in the play uh, immediately turns to his mother uh, and berates her, and they get on with the scene. And then Hamlet picks up the dead body and lugs the guts into the neighbor room. Well, in the ballet version... I watch the, the dancing Hamlet kill Polonius. As he falls to the ground, I realize who it is. Hmm. I look up at the dancing Hamlet who comes back. He sees what he's done, uh, has a moment of, of despair, and then rushes back to continue with his mother, leaving me, the other part of his brain, his mind, his feelings, still crouched over the dead body, uh, trying to cope with uh, having killed a man for the first time. So the dual nature of Hamlet was something we could play on, and often Hamlet is in two minds, to be or not to be. Uh, so it was a help, actually, uh, sometimes to have two actors playing one part. That is so interesting, because I was going to ask you how you share a Hamlet, and now, now I... Now I get it. Mm. Um, but getting back to the modern day and your your 
age and color and gender-blind production of Hamlet uh, last year. What struck you differently than when you were younger in embodying this role? Were you drawn to different aspects of the character or the play? And I, and I noticed one critic appreciated how you slowed down and you savored the lesser-known speeches and the meditative moments. Well, as I was saying, I, I, I tried not to uh, put on a, a dramatic version of a university lecture. I increasingly think that uh, acting is not about explaining, uh, but just uh, presenting. Uh, so you present the character, you, you say the words clearly, uh, you're alert to all their subtleties. And if there is contradiction within a speech or a scene or an act or the play itself, I don't think it's the actor's responsibility to explain and solve the problem. I think that's what an audience does. Uh, an audience has to work when they see a masterpiece like Hamlet and, and, and get involved. And, of course, Hamlet is constantly inviting them to be involved in the soliloquies which he speaks when nobody else is present uh, then who else can he be talking to than the audience? And uh, so they're drawn into the action and, and made to think and feel and, and come up with uh, answers as to perhaps what the play is all about. Now, that contrasts with what I was trying to do as a young man, which was saying I, I knew all the answers and uh, therefore probably presented a rather partial view of the play. I found this idea of not forcing anything onto the character, but letting the the character rest lightly on the words that he speaks, as it were. Uh, when I was doing uh, King Lear, a man who contradicts himself, doesn't seem to know what he's saying at one minute and then is very alert and perceptive at another point, to start explaining that psychologically... Uh, would be a bit unfair because psychology was something that Shakespeare didn't anticipate. I'm having a kind of very Los Angeles flashback as you're speaking to, it sounds more like you're letting the words or the play play you rather than you impose yourself on the, on yes. the text. Yes, well, that's, that, that's a nice way of putting it. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying... The words do speak for themselves. I'm just talking about Shakespeare. This wouldn't apply to, I think, any other playwright. But these words are so immaculate, so open to interpretation. Well, that's the other thing I'm flashing back to. Another guest that we've had on this podcast, Emma Smith, who has this uh, theory that she's coined a word for about Shakespeare called uh, gappiness, that, that Shakespeare leaves gaps for the audience for a reader to interpret things in a myriad of different ways, to enter into the text themselves. Yes. I don't think Shakespeare would have thought that his plays would be read. Uh, the, the, they were rarely published and in small editions. Uh, and, and plays existed in, in speeches distributed to the different actors, so there wasn't really the book, the Bible, the, the, the complete play uh, as uh, people study them at school and college, my view is that uh, the ideal is for the actors and directors and designers to present the play, try and not get in its way, 
and, and let the words go zinging through into the audience's ears and hearts. Well, we've been talking about Hamlet, and uh, and you're talking also about Lear, and maybe I'm swerving this into a different uh, direction, but I was thinking as I was having my Ian McKellen Film Festival the last few days that uh, that you've often said how much you regret that you never came out to your parents uh, and that your mother died when you were very young, so you didn't have, of course, time to do it then, but but you could have perhaps to your father when you were in your 20s. So I wondered how you think it has influenced how you play a role like Hamlet or Lear, which is so wrapped up with relationships between parent and child. Hmm. Well, you know, uh, you... <laughs> Yes, you do use your own experience, but just as much and probably more, you use your own imagination. I mean, the actors are lively observers of other people and, and uh, we all share the fascination of imagining that we are another person and then convincing a group, group of strangers that we are the other person whilst remaining resolutely oneself. How, how, how could it be in any other way? You couldn't be in a state of sort of ecstatic possession uh, for three and a half hours. But, I suppose I was um, thinking it because you said everything changed when you came out. Um, yes, it did. But my, the, the way my acting changed was that because my whole life I was encouraged by the laws of the land and the culture of the 50s to lie about myself in order to fit in, it seemed appropriate to me that my acting should be all about disguise, you know, putting on wigs and changing my looks and not being me. Hmm. And what changed when, when I became out, that uh, I was happy to delve into all aspects of myself and my acting became more about revelation than disguise or lying. Because I had a good time with my parents but felt feel like I let them down by not being able to be uh, open uh, with them uh, doesn't mean to say that uh, you can't play a young man who is absolutely the opposite, you know. it's. Uh... This is reminding me of what is universally considered your finest screen performance, which is, of course, in Ricky Gervais's extras. How do I act so well? What I do is I pretend to be the person I'm portraying in the film or play. Yeah. You're confused. No, oh, it's definitely simple. A case in point, Lord of the Rings. Little Peter Jackson comes from New Zealand, says to me, Sir Ian, I want you to be Gandalf the wizard. And I say to him, you are aware that I am not really a wizard. And he said, yes, I am aware of that. What I want you to do is to use your acting skills to portray the wizard for the duration of the film. So I said, okay. And then I said to myself, hmm, how would I do that? And this is what I did. I imagined what it would be like to be a wizard. And then I pretended and acted in that way on the day. Yeah. And how did I know what to say? The words were written down for me in a script. <laughs> <laughs> Did you add well, that? The, the way it works is you get a phone call out of the blue from Ricky Gervais and, and he flatters you by saying that he and Stephen uh, Merchant, his uh, co-writer, would like to 
dedicate a whole episode of his uh, program extras uh, with you as the central character. And if you agree to the proposition, then they will go ahead and write a script. So it was uh, sight unseen I agreed to be in it, but the script they came up with was the script that I spoke. I didn't make up any of that. That that was exactly as it was written. <laughs> and uh, the infuriating thing was that, as I said, admittedly, very funny lines to Ricky Gervais, who had written them opposite me, he would hoot with laughter. <laughs> not once, not twice, but many, many times. And in the end, I said, Rick, you please, will you not laugh? Let me just get it out. Because otherwise, one time I'll say these lines and they won't be funny and you won't laugh and that will be the take that you will have to use. He said exactly. It's my job to make you look rubbish <laughs> so, so that I win the Emmy. <laughs> and he did. He did win the Emmy. He is an imp. <laughs> it's interesting because you're talking about this duality of being honest while you're on stage while also playing a part. And and that fascinates me. And it reminds me of a wonderful scene in your your one-man play, Acting Shakespeare, in which yes. you break down that final soliloquy from Macbeth, uh, the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Oh, and, yes. And you say uh, in this scene that the more you say the word, the less meaning it has. And, and you explain how, as you say the lines, you have to both believe what Macbeth believes about the meaningless of existence, but also feel them with the corner of your own heart, which knows all acting is playing the fool. Mm. Could you? <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, I, I, you sound I like you forgot you said that. that. Yeah. Tell me more about that, because embodying that duality seems to be what separates good acting from from great acting. Well, I, 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 we're talking about Shakespeare, and, and acting Shakespeare is very different from any other script because of its verbal perfection, um, whether it's prose or or verse, uh, and the actor must know whether it's prose or verse, and, and if it's verse, there will be all sorts of hints, instructions in, in the rhythm and uh, which word comes at the end of a, the blank verse line and the way one thought leads on to another and one line leads on to the next. If you get all those technicalities and, and, and you understand the devices that uh, Shakespeare's used, then just to speak the line will be enough because it is so rich. You you don't want to force foie gras down people's mouths. <laughs> but even each tomorrow is a different tone and intonation. And well, yes, because uh, I generally played it that uh, there would have been a time for such a word. What time? And I'm thinking, tomorrow. And uh, the rhythm of the line puts the stress on the and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, so that and is, is uh, in the stress of the line is more important than tomorrow. So it's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and then you've had three tomorrows, and and you you it, it does begin to seem like a strange word. Uh, to mean the next day. 
And my point was that uh, maybe the repetition of the word began to rob it of its uh, immediate meaning as life itself is losing meaning. Now, that's a long explanation, but it, it just means that you put the stress on the and. Well, that's great. And the and makes you feel the weight, just the weight. Yes, of yes, it time. does. It does. Uh, I, I'm also thinking you've said often that you learned so much from playing Macbeth in Trevor Nunn's production way back in yes. 1979 with Judy Dench as Lady Macbeth. If we should fail. It would fail. But screw your courage to the sticking place and we'll not fail. When Duncan is asleep, which of the rather shall his day's hard journey soundly invite him, his two chamberlains will lie with wine and wassail so convince that memory, the warder of the brain, shall be a fume, and the receipt of reason a limbic only, when in swinish sleep their drenched natures lie as in a death. What cannot you and I perform upon the unguarded Duncan? What not put upon his spongy officers, who shall bear the guilt of our great quell? Bring forth men, children, and live, for thy undaunted metal should compose nothing but males. Will it not be received when we have marked with blood those sleepy two of his own chamber and used their very daggers? That they have done it. Who dares receive it, other, as we shall make our griefs and clamour roar upon his death? I am settled and bend up each corporal agent to this terrible fate. <gasps> Away, and mock the time with fairest show. <sighs> false face must hide what the false heart doth know. One thing in particular you learned, you said, was how to direct a soliloquy into the eyes of everyone in the audience. So what did you learn about that, how to do that? Well, it hasn't always been the case that that actors uh, will speak these uh, soliloquies, these monologues, these thoughts spoken out loud, were often spoken as if they were an internal dialogue. And you see that in Laurence Olivier's black and white movie of Hamlet. The soliloquies are recorded in voiceover and you just uh, look at Olivier's troubled face. When Kenneth Branagh played Benedict in Much Ado About Nothing, his own film, he spoke his soliloquies, comic soliloquies, uh, to no one in particular as if he were talking to himself. Well, I think Benedict becomes much funnier if he is actually talking to someone and the people he's talking to are present, so they're, they're the audience. Uh, and if you're talking to people, you, you like to catch their eye, don't you? And make sure that they're listening. And uh, in the very small theatre where we did Macbeth in Stratford, uh, just 120 people scattered around a, a circular stage, it was possible for me not necessarily in one soliloquy, but certainly during the evening to look every single person in the audience in the eye. And I I now do that. If, if, if I'm speaking a soliloquy in a larger theatre, I try and give the illusion that, although I can't always see the faces, they're too far away and in the dark, it will feel to the audience that I'm talking directly to them. And in fact, 
people have said, uh, I, I felt you were talking to me when I was. Uh, <laughs> that's the whole point. Uh, and if you're talking to people, then you're surely sometimes expecting them to speak in reply, to be or not to be. That's the question. Uh, does anyone here know the answer? Uh, and, and I think it would be a great compliment to an actor speaking that or other soliloquies to have the audience shout out uh, an, an answer. Uh, that would be real audience participation. I would love to see that in your next Hamlet. We'll continue with part two of Sir Ian McKellen's conversation with Barbara Bogave in our next episode. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Rob Double at London Broadcast and Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs, Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on your podcast platform of choice. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.